0: It's now time for our Bible reading, so I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. If you haven't got a Bible, we've got baskets at the end of the rows. Please grab a Bible, and if you haven't got a Bible at home, please take that. That's a gift from us to you. Today we're reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and it's on the screen behind me as well. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason... God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness.
1: Thank you, Rowan. Good morning, everyone. Uh, When you stand up and you see all the people sitting at the back, and you see two entirely empty rows down the front... you kind of start to wonder. Actually, it reminds me of a story. This is not in the notes, but um, it's a good start, isn't it? Hey, the, Now, this, this preacher went on holidays had long service leave. He was away for about three months, got back to church. First Sunday back and at the door, the deacons met him and they said, hey, we've done a few, um, few renovations while you were away. And the pastor said, okay, no worries, all good. So, um, and he noticed, you know, people would come in and they'd sit down towards the back and the deacon would press a button and all the rows would just slide forward. And the pastor thought, this is good. And they kept filling up at the back and they kept sliding them forward. The pastor thought, I love it. And so he stood up to preach and all these people nice and close and he thought it was great. And he was preaching up a storm and after 30 minutes, exactly one of the deacons pressed a button and they trapped her open in the platform and off he went. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's hope that doesn't happen today. Hey, you'll see on the screen behind me a little, um, some arith- arithmetic. And you know, I'd like, love to hear... Uh, Whether you can work this out, I know people listening on the podcast, this is not great listening. So there's some pictures of some triangles, and one triangle plus another triangle equals two. Two triangles plus another two equals six. Then it says three triangles, and another three triangles equals 12. So maybe there's a pattern developing. And then five triangles plus five triangles equals what? So what is the answer? 22, someone said? Yep. Hey? 12? 12? God, oh, God, yes, yes, God, God, Jesus, it's always a good answer, yes. 72? 30, yes, 30, implying that the 4 plus 4 would be there, correct. All right, let's go to the next slide to do it in just basic numbers to make it much easier for you. 1 and 1, 2 and 2, 3 and 3, 5 and 5. Any more guesses? All right, next slide. The answer, of course, is 10. 5 plus 5 is always 10. Next slide. Sometimes we get confused by a couple of some misinformation that distracts us and deceives us. Today's passage talks about don't be deceived, so let us not get deceived so easily. Fortunately, mathematics is a universal language. I mean, I hate algebra, but basic maths doesn't change. One plus one is two, 5 plus 5 is 10. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, young or old in Australia or Africa or Siberia in 2017 or 1850 or 500 BC, regardless of the weather or the government or the tides or the time of day, 1 and 1 is 2 and 5 and 5 is 10. Permanent truths. We can hold on to that. But it's easy to be deceived and distracted and confused by lies and by misinformation. Today is a significant day. You may not believe it, but it is actually. This week we celebrated the 500th anniversary of a guy called Martin Luther, who nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. may not have seemed a big event for him at the time, but it started a movement that literally changed the world, a, uh, a movement called the Reformation, which uh, Martin Luther was disturbed by because the church had a whole lot of practices that were not no longer in line with God's word, and he wanted to bring them back into line with the Bible. And um, one of those churches that was eventually planted out of the Reformation was the Baptist churches. Another one was the Church of England, which is still a major church today. So the Reformation started in 15, 17, 500 years ago this week. In 1605, on this day, November the 5th, 1605, a guy called Guy Fawkes was arrested. He was uh, taking part in a plot to assassinate the King of England because he wanted to restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. So the Reformation was still uh, going on then, but maybe not so pleasantly. And also today, November the 5th, 2017, is an international day of prayer for persecuted Christians all around the world. So I encourage you later in the day, or during the sermon if you get bored, to, to pray for people who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus all over the world. Not only that, it's also Communion Sunday, and for some people it's a long weekend, so a very significant day. Uh, As you know, if you're a regular here, we've been working our way through the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Last week we took a took a break. We had a guest speaker, Dr. Omar, and uh, I think you'll all agree if you were here, it was worth having a break because he fabulous message, well presented. He was a most excellent guest, and if you weren't here, I would strongly encourage you to go to the website and listen to the podcast because he was um, excellent. A very challenging message about following Jesus for his purposes, not just on, for our own agenda. So today, we'll resume our series on Thessalonians, which is called Progress, and as Rowan read to you, looking at 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, which Bible scholars will say is a very significant passage in terms of end time prophecy. Obviously, Bible prophecy is a very important thing. Uh, The Bible is full of prophetic things. Um, The Old Testament is full of prophecies about the coming Messiah. It had about 316 prophecies about the coming Messiah, and you wouldn't believe how many of them were filled in the life of Jesus. It was actually 316, believe it or not which is pretty awesome. But there's a whole lot of prophecies in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that are yet to be fulfilled about the second coming of Jesus and about the end times. So this is a significant passage on a very important historical day. And do I feel under pressure? Not at all. It's all good. So let's see what we can learn from today's passage and, more importantly, how it applies to our lives. So verse 1 and 2 simply reminds us that Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but we just do, do know that he is Coming back, and all his people will be gathered to him. That's a great image, isn't it? The first time Jesus came as a as a helpless baby, and he came not to be served, but to serve. But when he comes back, he will come in power. He will come as king. He will come as Lord of lords. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, described how we, everyone, all of God's people who are still alive on that day will be caught up with him in the air, and will meet Jesus. Will be gathered to him, and will be with him forever. And that will be a great day. All God's people said, amen, bring it on. sooner the better. We look forward to that day, but in the meantime, we keep working and doing God's work here on earth. Some of you may recall in 2002, 15 years ago, there was some explosions, some bombs were set off in Bali. 202 people were killed. 98 of them were Australians. And the federal government, under Prime Minister John Howard at the time, launched a campaign to educate us and warn us about the threat of terrorism. One of the slogans was, be alert, but not alarmed. They said, we don't want to panic, we don't want to change our lifestyle. That was the whole point. We wanted to maintain our Australian way of life, but we had to be aware of this threat and looking out for potential dangers. Be alert, but not alarmed. And I think the same principle applies here that Paul, the author of Thessalonians, is saying to us, hey... And Jesus is coming back. There's going to be this man of lawlessness and a whole lot of stuff going on. It's great to be aware of it, but don't panic, don't stress, don't don't be all consumed with all of that, and with this false teaching that was obviously going on. Just be alert, but not alarmed. Some people and I have met some in my younger days who. Uh, they're obsessed with end time prophecy, and it seems like the only passages they ever read are, you know, Daniel, Thessalonians, Revelation, Mark, Matthew 24, trying to figure out how it's all going to work and when it's all going to happen, and, and it becomes all consuming for them. And I don't think that's the point. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 24 that even he doesn't know when he's coming back. So we're not going to figure it out, are we? Seriously. So I think it's best just to get on with life. It's great to read your Bible, great to be aware, great to watch out for the signs. don't let it become an obsession be alert but not alarmed there are many different theories about end-time prophecy how it's all going to work out some people say the the pre-tribulation that Jesus will come back and then the Antichrist will rise and there will be tribulation or mid-tribulation where you know Christians will be caught up in it for a while and then we'll be set free or post-tribulation where we all have to put up with seven years of, of tribulation and then Jesus comes many people with far more qualified Bible scholars than I am argue about it. So my favourite theory, as Ray Gunton mentioned a few weeks ago, is the pan-tribulation theory. I can guarantee it will pan out exactly the way God intended it to do. But this passage does give us some really good information uh, about it. In verse 3 and 4, warns us not to let anyone deceive us in any way. Jesus, in Matthew 24, emphasises, Don't be deceived. Do not let anyone deceive you. So Paul is correcting some false teachings. He's saying there will be signs, there will be rebellion against God, and we see indications of that in our world today. And someone called the man of lawlessness will be revealed. In other parts of the Bible, particularly uh, John's uh, letters and stuff, this man is called the Antichrist. He will set himself up against God. He will oppose God. He will deny God. He will defy God. He will even proclaim himself to be God. But he will actually be the antithesis of Jesus. And this chapter also tells us that he is doomed to destruction. So again, don't worry about this guy. He'll come with signs and wonders and power and trying to deceive. But don't stress, don't panic. Be alert, but not alarmed, because he is doomed to destruction. Verse 5 to 7 tell us that the, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world but it is being held back. Now Paul doesn't specify who or what exactly it is that is holding back the power of lawlessness. One theory is that he's referring to the Holy Spirit and that would make sense because it is impossible I think to underestimate the significance of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the world um, we sort of take him for granted. We probably don't appreciate him enough. I think maybe some churches overemphasise the Holy Spirit and it's all about the Holy Spirit, and so we tend to overreact to that and maybe we underestimate his importance and his significance. The Holy Spirit is never out for his own glory. He gives glory to the Son, and the Son in turn brings glory to the Father. But we nevertheless don't want to uh, overlook the significance of the Holy Spirit. I was trying to think of an analogy of how insignificant it would be if the Holy Spirit was suddenly taken out of our world. And as Ray mentioned this morning, the importance of the setup team. And imagine if we turned up one morning and the whole setup team and just decided to take the day off. I mean, there was no chairs and no stage, and well, we'd sure notice them then, wouldn't we? Or if the morning tea team just decided, ah, it's all good, I'll sleep in today and someone else. And there was no tea or coffee or biscuits afterwards. We would suddenly learn to appreciate them very, very much, wouldn't we? Well, multiply that by about a million and you might understand the impact on this earth if the Holy Spirit was suddenly removed. The Holy Spirit is described in the Bible as our guide, our help, our comforter. And bearing in mind that the fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Imagine a world suddenly devoid of all those qualities. Not much fun. I'm sure there would still be people who say, I love you, but it would be much less of a godly, sacrificial, committed, caring kind of love and much more of a I love you because of what I can get out of you, self-serving kind of love. But we do see the power of lawlessness at work already in this earth. People want to reject God and his laws. People want to sin, but they don't want the consequences. People want to defy God and do things their own way, which is the very essence of lawlessness. Uh, one, one flaw, sorry, just, I'm out of order with my notes. One flaw with that theory that the it is the Holy Spirit that is holding back the tide of lawlessness, I guess, is in the, the timeline seems to be that this man of lawlessness will be revealed. Uh, Jesus comes back, takes, takes the and you know, God's people out with him. And then Revelation talks about this great time of, of, of immense tribulation. But Revelation makes it very clear that during that tribulation, there will still be, people will still be being saved. People will still be being martyred for their faith. So it cl- seems clear to me the Holy Spirit is still at work through that time drawing people to God. So another theory would be that what is, holding back the tide is the church the people of god who are in the world who are praying who are loving who are serving god who are doing good who are being his witnesses and by by being here our our very presence stems the tide of lawlessness and once jesus comes back and takes his people to be with him then the floodgates open and lawlessness will reign supreme and that will be a horrible thing and i don't plan to be around but Like I said, I don't know for sure. We're only speculating. I do believe that um, if it is essential that we know, then the Bible would make it clear. And seeing it doesn't make it very clear, it's not essential that we know. Verse 8 says that the, the lawless one will be revealed. And the quote is, Whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So do not worry. Jesus will win and it'll be a massacre. It'll be an, an overwhelming victory. The, ma- the major weapons of evil are sin and death, and Jesus has already conquered both. So this battle is a foregone conclusion. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the name that is above every other name, and he's already won this battle before it even begins. So don't worry about the man of lawlessness. Be alert, but not alarmed verse 9 tells us the man of lawlessness will do the work of satan and he will try to deceive matthew 24 and other passages also tell us about deceptions that will rise people false christs people who are claiming to be god trying to deceive as many as they can and the bible tells us that satan or the devil is an evil spirit or a fallen angel revelation 12 says he leads the world astray Ephesians says he is the spirit who works in those who are disobedient. 2 Corinthians tells us that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. And Jesus himself in John John chapter 8 says the devil is a murderer, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Not someone you'd want to trust. Not someone you'd want to hang out with. So the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness will do the work of the devil, and we don't know yet who he is. There's been lots of speculation down through the ages. Some people think maybe it's not a single individual, but maybe a a group of people, a powerful group. Some people have speculated maybe it's a communist government because Russia and China and other places, they certainly make a habit of persecuting God's people. They deny God's existence and they, they deliberately persecute God's people. Other people might say it's the Americans or the Arabs or the Catholic Church or the Illuminati or some evil, you know, um, partnership between a group of those, and we really don't know. And other people say, and this passage would seem to suggest, that it is an individual. Not, not Not a group, but a specific individual, specifically a man. And again, there have been many theories down through the ages who that man might be. In the time the Bible was written, some of the New Testament letters, they, they probably thought it was Emperor Nero. He was a shocker. His, um, he persecuted the Christians. Something shocking And his name, when written in Greek, looked like the number 666. So there was plenty of evidence. They thought maybe Nero was the Antichrist, but history would say, no, there's another one still to come. Some people have considered some of the popes have been pretty evil and self-serving men, which is part of the reason why the Reformation had to happen, because to Get the church back on track. And people thought, have you thought, this religious figure was the Antichrist? In the 90s, 1930s and 40s, Adolf Hitler was a prime suspect, causing wars and destruction all over the place. He hated the Jews. And he was a, a prime suspect as the Antichrist. And ironically, his archenemy was a guy called Joseph Stalin from Russia. And he also was accused of being the Antichrist because he hated Christians and, and went out of his way to persecute them. But the truth is, we don't know yet. He has not yet been revealed. And personally, I suspect that even the devil does not know who the Antichrist is because the devil doesn't know when Jesus is coming back, so he doesn't know when all of this stuff is going to happen. So I would suspect that in every generation, the devil is looking out for people on earth who deny the truth, people who reject God, people who seek to live their own way, and the devil will use them and deceive them and manipulate them for his own purposes and one of those people at some point when all this is fulfilled will step up to global prominence doing the work of satan deceiving people rejecting god and leading people astray if he possibly can verse 10 warns us that the wicked people will perish because they refuse to love the truth and verse 11 reinforces that point See, God gives us all freedom of choice, free will. We all get to make a choice. We can choose to accept God or we can choose to reject him. Obviously, God desires that we will all accept him, but he doesn't force it. We all have a choice, and every choice has a consequence. And if people choose to reject God, then God allows them to believe the lie. He allows them to be deceived. And verse 12 confirms the consequence for all those who choose not to be, not to believe the truth, they will be condemned. To be condemned in a legal sense is to be found guilty, to be sentenced, punished, held accountable for your crimes. John 3, 16 is a verse we all love. It's a great verse. It says, God loved the world so much. He gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life and it's a great promise and we all grasp onto that but the very clear implication of that verse confirmed in Thessalonians is that if you choose not to believe then you will perish you will be condemned Now, this is when you're condemned in a biblical sense. This is not like Victoria, where you get found guilty of a crime and you get stuck on the wrist in a few hours of community service. We're talking about eternal separation from God, that kind of condemnation. This is bad, bad stuff. Now, my personal favourite, one of my favourite verses is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, for those of us who do believe, nothing to fear, no condemnation for us. So there's lots of interesting and important verses in this passage. There's lots of interpretations about some of those verses, and it's all interesting and useful information. But how do we respond to this passage? What do we do in response? What's our application as well as all this interesting information? I mentioned at the start that this chapter warns us against being deceived. In James chapter 1, verse 22, says... Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Great verse. So if we just listen to this passage and go, oh, that's a lot of interesting information, but don't do anything, well, we're deceiving ourselves, which is kind of like doing the devil's work for him, which is like really not what we're trying to, trying to do. So what do we actually do? What, what, is, what is our response or our application? Do we worry about when Jesus is coming back and get ourselves all edgy and trying to work it out so we can predict the right day and the hour and stuff? Well, no, because that's the whole point. Don't bother doing that. So this might seem overly simplistic, but sometimes it's the simple things that are most obvious and most easily missed, like five plus five is ten. Sometimes the simple thing is the most important. So for me, the truth, the key element for us to remember today is in verse 12, where it says, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Uh, we're a few slides behind there, Ryan. You can catch us up if you can, please. Um, now, I'm not sure about you, but I, I sure don't want to be condemned like those other people. So the important thing for us, the essential thing for us to remember is to know the truth and to believe the the truth, but what is truth? See, we live in a postmodern world with relativism and pluralism, and we're told there are many paths to truth. We're told that what's true for you may not be true for me. We're told we can create our own truth as long as we respect somebody else's truth. It's all very vague, isn't it? How can we know what is the real truth? We might we can go to the next slide. Thanks, Aaron. We might like to think that our our legal system will always find the truth. But sadly, we probably all know of cases where guilty people have been found not guilty and not guilty people have been found guilty. And no matter how hard they try, our legal system can't always get it right. 20 years ago, down in Moi, there was a little toddler, a two-year-old kid called Jaden Lesky, who was murdered. It took them ages to find his body. And 20 years later, they still don't know for sure who did it. One man was tried and found not guilty, and plenty of people still think he did it, but no one has ever been held accountable, and we still don't know for sure. So our legal system, no matter how hard they try, doesn't always expose the truth. Some people think that might is right, strongest is best, survival of the fittest. But our jails are full of people who are strong enough to win a fight, but it doesn't mean they are on the side of truth or righteousness. Some people think that being clever might give you an inside edge on the truth. You can outsmart everyone, but again, at jails, you got people there who thought they were smart enough to beat the system, and maybe they did for a while, but they got caught. In the Bible, King Solomon was considered the wisest man who ever lived, and he, there were several books of his, and some profound wisdom in there, but even King Solomon wasn't smart enough to, to live his own life right to the end. He had 300 wives, plus a whole bunch of other women, and that's not that smart, and sure enough, by the, no offence, but you know, and sure enough, by the end of his own life, he, he went off the track and he ruined his life. He ruined his legacy. So, even he wasn't smart enough, and which also goes to show that old age is not necessarily a, a guarantee of truth. Some very educated and very intelligent people believe that the whole world was created when nothing exploded into something and created everything which is not only absurd, it's actually scientifically impossible. And yet, intelligent, educated people believe it. So, cleverness is clearly no guarantee of having a monopoly on the truth. Some people believe that popularity makes makes it right. But if you live in a democracy and you look at some of the governments that have been elected by democratic countries over the years, you think, well, maybe not. Some people think the loudest and angriest argument will somehow proved to be the truth. It's like two little children. He did it. She did it. He did it. She did it. Doesn't mean either of them are telling the truth, no matter how much they stamp their foot and get angry and insist. It's no guarantee of the truth. And being absolutely convinced of your opinion still doesn't make it the truth, because two people can have polar opposite opinions. Two well-meaning, educated, sensible people can have polar opposite opinions about the same issue. It doesn't mean either one is actually got the truth. So how can we know and believe the truth? Every human being will have an opinion and that's all they are, is opinions. Some people will think, well, my opinion is definitely right and everyone else should listen and everyone else is thinking, well, no, thank you, because my opinion is better. So, So we have to look beyond ourselves, don't we? We have to look outside ourselves, someone who's greater than us, someone who's wiser than us someone eternal. So let's ask God what he thinks is the truth. So first of all, God's word, the Bible, is known as the truth. This book is called the Word of God. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that all scripture, all of this is inspired by God or God-breathed, which is The same concept in Genesis when God formed Adam out of the dust and he breathed life into him. God breathes life and truth and power into his word. And this word claims over and over again to be the truth. 1 Kings 17, the word of the Lord is the truth. John 17, your word is truth. Revelation 21 and 22, these words are trustworthy and true. Psalm 119 says all your words are true, then it says your law is true, then it says all your commands are true. Psalm 13 says the word of the Lord is right and true. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 18, the Lord's word is flawless. Proverbs 30, every word of God is flawless and there's lots more and you're saying please enough, I'll get the point. God's word is true, reliable, trustworthy. It does not change. It does not depend on the weather or the government or popularity or political correctness or anything. It is eternal and it is true. It doesn't fade away. Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Matthew 24, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So God's word, the Bible, is the truth. And even more specifically, in a really profound way, Jesus Christ is the truth. In John chapter 1, we read just several phrases from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. Through him all things were made. So we're talking about a him, not an it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is literally called the Word of God. So Jesus Himself is literally the truth. For some further evidence, Psalm 119 says, Your Word is a light for my path. And then in John chapter 8 says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is not only the Word of God, He is God Himself. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then in John 14, 6, one of the most profound and impactful statements ever recorded. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we know the truth and believe the truth? Read the Bible and believe in Jesus. How do we avoid condemnation? Read the Bible and believe in Jesus. If you do not believe the truth, you will be condemned. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will perish. It may not be a comfortable truth. It may not be a popular truth. It may not be a truth we want, but we don't get to choose the truth. God is God, and God makes the rules, and that is God's truth. So what can I encourage you to do today in response to this passage? is read your Bible, get to know Jesus, believe in Jesus. If you want to avoid eternal condemnation, let me leave you today with the words of Jesus, who said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. And that is the most important message I could possibly give you on this very significant day in history father god thank you for the gift of your word the power of your word and the gift of your son may all of us know the truth believe the truth and receive your gift of eternal life amen